All right, dear friends, we're in Luke chapter 5. We'll be walking through verses 27 through 32. I'll go ahead and begin in verse 27. After this, he went down and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This feast takes place in the background of the two great healings that Jesus just performed. We have the leper that was healed, the man that, as we spoke of, was cut off, was outside of the city limits, was staying out in the wilderness and in outer darkness. And he was one who was considered to be unclean. He was ceremonially unclean. So unclean that were anyone to come near him, he had to declare to them, unclean, unclean. And he had to cover up his upper lip as he said this. He was one who survived and lived on the charity of other people. And all at once, in one fell swoop, he was made clean. He was restored. The effects of this disease that had affected him for so long, this disease that was internal and was beginning to manifest the consequences of that disease outwardly, first through white patches, and then as it began to grow, disfiguring him, even parts of his body falling off, all of it restored clean, there to walk amongst the people, needing merely just to go to the priest and be declared clean. Understand that. It wasn't as though this this leper had to go and gradually work to become clean. It wasn't as though someone who perhaps was beginning to heal from leprosy, because there were people that would become ill and then would gradually get better and the priest would look at them and kind of see where things are and was it healing and was it doing better and then they could be restored. This was all at once that this happened because of the work of Christ. This also sits in the background of the paralytic man. The man who had been paralyzed for some time was not able to move around. His friends had to carry him around on a stretcher Fantastic story, was it not? His friends so determined to bring him to Jesus, so determined that he would sit before Jesus. Their faith was so strong in Christ as the Messiah, the one who could restore him, the one who could heal him, the one who could make him whole again. That when they had no access to Jesus and the ones who were around Jesus, we didn't point this out, but seemed to have no interest in allowing him to have access to Jesus. They went and they climbed onto the roof 
ripped apart the tiles in the roof and lowered their friend down before Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And the shock and the awe of all who were around him, who is this? Who can forgive sins but God? And the man was healed. He was commanded to pick up his stretcher, pick up his bed, and to walk away. And he did that. He walked away in obedience. And we saw within this, these two great healings, this message that is communicated about the work of Jesus, that he is making those who were impure, who were unclean, who were defiled by sin, clean again. Clean in the sight of God. And those who are unable to work to act spiritually, those who were completely unable to act on their own, those who could do nothing good as we read in Romans chapter 3, those who are seeking not after God. Like that man that was paralyzed and was restored. They can now walk. They can now move for the first time in their existence. They are able to walk in obedience to God for the first time in their existence. They're able to walk in holiness, able to walk in righteousness, something that you were unable to do, unable to do prior to that. We see that's our our natural-born state. Our natural-born state is in an alliance with Satan as a child of the devil. You don't become a child of the devil. You are born a child of the devil. You don't become someone who is unable to do anything good, someone who is unable to walk in obedience to God. You are born that way. We are like that leper. We are like the paralyzed man. And the work of Jesus is immediate in that respect. That there is an immediate change that is happening in that person legally. Their status changing before God. From being at war to being at peace. Their ability to be obedient to the law of God changing immediately. They are immediately sanctified. Not that they're perfect. We'll hit on that just in a little bit. But you are at the first time in your existence, at the point in which you are regenerated, the point in which you are trusting in Christ and turning from your sin and turning to Christ. You are able not to sin. You are able to walk in obedience. Someone who was crippled for some time, most especially most of their lives, if, if they were suddenly healed, if there was a surgery that was done on them, let's say in our day, it would, it would take time to walk. It would take time to learn to walk, that you could even be mobile on your own. If someone just had a surgery and they had been paralyzed and they had a surgery so that they would be able to walk, they would still be walked out of the hospital by their friends. Not so with the healing of Jesus. The man stood up on his own. He even had the muscular understanding. His brain even had the understanding of how to use what had been given to him. The great work of Jesus 
the depth of the work of Jesus. Looking now into social sins of this day. And we're going to have a contrast here. It was almost two sermons, and it, it was almost one sermon. It became two sermons. It was going to be feasting and fasting, and I decided we're going to do feasting this week. And when I get up here next, we're going to talk about fasting. We have this situation that is no small controversy to these scribes and Pharisees. So we're going to see two aspects here. We're going to see gratefulness and grumbling in the midst of this feast. Gratefulness and grumbling. We're going to see a man who has been restored with God, a man who has been made clean before God, a man who is now able to walk in obedience. But those in his culture are not celebrating as Christ is celebrating. And secondly, we're going to see the grace of the shepherd, the grace of Christ as it is shown. Let's talk with this gratefulness and, and this grumbling at this beginning portion here. Starting in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink? with tax collectors and sinners. Now for us, this doesn't resonate in the same way in which it would for someone who lived in first century Israel. I want you to understand that the tax collectors were viewed as being some of the lowest people in that culture. The lowest of the lowest respect was held for the tax collectors. Perhaps there may be a competition between who was lower, whether it be a prostitute or a, a tax collector. But they were seen as being unclean. They were seen as being those who had sold out to the Romans, who were selling out their very people. And I want to stop for a second and make some comments about the Pharisees because this is something that and I would say it's an error that is often often made people view Pharisees they view the scribes and the Pharisees and they will project on to them something that's not what is happening in the modern conversation it's it's very common for the scribes and the Pharisees to be described as those that were the the oppressors in this time those that were holding all of the power, those that were, were ruling over the others and were, were oppressing them. And there may be some legitimacy to this, but if that's the only way in which you view them, you're not understanding the whole picture. Because that's not what's happening here. The, the scribes and the Pharisees are being oppressed by the Roman Empire. In Levi, or we could also understand him to be Matthew, he's the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, um, is basically the man in their eyes. He is working for the man. 
He is serving as a tax collector. He is going around and he is excising taxes from Israel. He is taking that which Israel gains through their labors. He is stealing it from them. He is stealing it for Rome and he's stealing some for himself as well. And he is then going and giving it to this Gentile empire. Life isn't that simple. People don't just fit into these clean categories of good guy, bad guy, or powerful, or not powerful. He is, without a question, one of the most despised people in this culture. Um, and it's, it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking that this is one of the disciples that Jesus chooses. For you, it might not be shocking For the people in the first century, that's what you need to gather, that this is a very shocking decision on the part of Jesus. Notice that he's not going and gathering any scribes. He's not going and gathering any any Pharisees. I want you to understand the depth to which the tax collectors were despised. It was believed in the first century that if a tax collector went into your house... Your entire house was unclean. Most of the tax collectors that were working here were Jews. And they were Jews that were working for the, the Roman Empire. And they were, Rome was ruling over the people with an iron fist at this time. And so it was, it was a double offense that you have a man here who is a Jew and has sold out his people in their eyes. And as in going on and excising taxes from them, using Roman soldiers even to go in and take what he takes from them. They, they didn't just take whatever was required. They had the ability to go and excise greater taxes. In fact, there would be a lottery as to who would to t- get to take the taxes. And they would give it to the person that was able to take the most amount of money. Rome would just require a certain amount of money to come from an area. So this is Jerusalem, so much money needs to come from here. This is Galilee, so much money needs to come from here. And so the tetrarchs would hire tax collectors to go and to excise these taxes, and they'd pick people that were good at doing this. And it ended up becoming kind of a family business, a little side business. It wasn't just about taking the taxes Because there would be people that wouldn't have enough money to pay their taxes. So what do you do then? Well, you can work with them. You can give them a deal. Okay, I'll loan you the money. So I won't go and terrorize your house at this point. I won't go and take things from your home at this time. I won't go and take you outside and beat you at this time. No, I will give you a loan. And at a very decent interest rate, I've read that some of the loans were as high as 50%. It's what they get excised from people. So it was a very lucrative business to be in. And part of the reason why they were so despised, so hated, such a pariah in the culture. And it's not as though what they did was, was no small thing. It was a great thing. It was very significant what they did. It was sinful, the ways in which they behaved. But when they asked Jesus what they should do at one point, he tells them to take no more than is required of them. He doesn't tell them they could never excise taxes. Same thing with the Roman soldiers. He doesn't say nobody can ever be a 
a Roman soldier. But here's Jesus calling, calling a tax collector to be his disciple. And he walks away, walks away from it all. And here he is in the home of a tax collector under a feast that has been provided by this tax collector celebrating, celebrating Jesus, celebrating perhaps we could understand the conversion of Matthew. And there Jesus is eating amongst all of those that are despised. These were, these were powerful people that were despised. These are men who had great power in this culture. These are men who had hurt people greatly in this culture. So this was shocking. This was shocking. How, how, how can you do this? How can you eat with them? How can you, you fellowship with these sinners that they had no category to understand what was happening in this house. Why was he doing this? They had orchestrated their lives in such a way that they would never be in such a position. That they would never be in such a circumstance to even have a tax collector in their home, much less be residing in the home of a tax collector, eating with a tax collector one who had extorted from the people. But Levi walked away from this occupation. There's no question about that. You can see other disciples, when they came to Jesus, when Jesus called them, they're fishing, he says, follow me, they follow him. Well, they can go back, they fish again, we see them do that. Not so with Levi. Not so with Levi. When he walked away from this profession, that was it. There was no going back. There was going to be someone else that was going to fill that booth. And it was a change in his career. He would never go back and do, do the same thing. The question is, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Don't read past that too quickly. Understand and see and grasp and gather the, the depth to which there is sinfulness amongst those that are here. That Christ is here at this time fellowshipping with these, fellowshipping with these who had done great crimes to the people that are there, had been greatly offensive to the people that are here. We, we, we must not walk too quickly past that reality. Jesus is choosing one of the lowest people in his culture to join him as a disciple. He is choosing someone who has done all kinds of sins to join him as a disciple. And he is here, and there's celebration that is happening. Levi has thrown a party, and there is joy that is happening at this time. Is, this is similar to what we will see when we get there with, with the older brother, the parable of the older brother, where there is a, a great party that has been thrown. The younger brother has, has come home, 
after wasting his inheritance. And the fatted calf has been slaughtered, and there is a great festival, and there is a great party. And the younger brother is in that party. And it is the father that is standing at the door with the older brother that was always obedient, always good. He's inviting him into the party. And that is what we have here. We have those on the outside that are looking in, those that have been following these rules, those who have been obedient to the rules that had been set forward, those that had been given or so they thought they were. And there is shock and awe on their parts. Shock and awe that Christ would be fellowshipping with someone like this, with gratefulness and this grumbling that is here. But secondly, we see this grace. We see grace and restoration. Grace and restoration as we continue to walk through this passage into verse 31. It says, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We see here the freeness of the grace of of Jesus. I want to emphasize that. If Jesus wanted to demonstrate how free his grace was, the depth to which his grace could be attained by anyone This is how he would do it. It's by saving a tax collector in this time period. This is what they would have have seen. Jesus is the great physician. He is the one that is restoring. He is the one that is granting them, them healing. Those that had been cut off, those that were separate like that leper, those that were unable to do anything good or worthwhile, Jesus is is restoring But notice his words there. He's not come. He's not come to call the righteous, but he's called to come sinners to repentance. And you must understand his words rightly. He is not saying that I didn't come for those that are already righteous or those who already have a a means or a path whereby they are made righteous. No, no. He's saying, I've not come for those who believe they are righteous and are not actually. That's what's happening here. He has come for those that see their need. He has come for those that see their sin, that see the the tragedy of their circumstances. That is for whom grace is given. How is it grace? How is it grace if you are bringing your good works to the cross? How is it grace if grace is just for these other people that really need it? It's not grace at all. As we read last time, saved by grace and through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Which of us can boast in our salvation? Which of us can boast in in our our goodness? 
The scribes and the Pharisees focused upon the, the greatness of the sin of others, and they focused upon the ways in which they kept their tradition, which they believed to be consistent with the moral law of God. And they saw the ways that these others did not meet these standards, were not living in a way that was consistent to these standards. And it is appropriate to see when people are falling short of the word of God, to, to see when people are falling short of the law of God and to share that with them. It is important. This does not mean that nobody ever judges. If you were to tell someone, don't judge, you would be making a judgment even yourself. It's not possible to live that way. But we are to judge in righteousness. We are to judge rightly and to understand the moral law of God and to understand what the law of God is and what it says. That it is not a moral standard that is merely tied up in your outward actions, which is where legalism primarily resides. It is a law normally that is made up that does not even meet the outward expectations of the moral law, but does most definitely not deal with the inward expectations of the moral law. And did we not see this this weekend? The, the seriousness of our sin, the, the depth of our sin, that even sinful desires are a violation of the law of God. Sinful motives are a, a violation of, of the moral law of God. And one of the purposes of the law is to serve as a mirror that we can see, that we can see the ways in which we're falling short, that we can see that we don't meet this standard. That is one of the solutions to this legalism is to see the law of God rightly. Not to diminish it or make less of it or to ignore violations of it, but to understand the depth of the law of God, the requirements of the moral law of God, because what we see in that is the grace that has been displayed in Christ Jesus, that Jesus always fulfilled it, that Jesus was that standard of righteousness. Jesus was actively obedient. And we have received the blessings of his work. If in fact you have, you are clothed in Christ's righteousness, which was granted to you because of his obedience to the moral law of God. Like the paralytic that is then able to move, is then able to have life. You are cleansed of the consequences of sin is taken upon by Christ Jesus. But I want to emphasize this again, and we talked about it over the last couple of sermons, but these Pharisees fell into the category of legalists, and they also fell into the category of, of antinomians. And they were legalists because they had created a standard. They had a standard. They had their tradition when you see Jesus dealing with the Pharisees and the scribes throughout the Gospels, you see him continually interacting with 
what the word of God says or what the highness of the moral law of God is in their own tradition and continually dealing with their tradition and the ways in which their tradition was at times inconsistent with the moral law of God, was lower than the moral law of God, or in the ways that they would practice it contradicted the moral law of God. But they were legalists because they believed they had this standard that they kept, and they had attained a righteousness by keeping it. But I said they were antinomian as well. Namas meaning law, anti meaning without and they were without law, and by that I don't mean they had no law at all, or they had no rules. But I mean by that they had not the law of God. They were not keeping the moral law of God as their standard. It's the legalists because they created the system of righteousness, and they were determining themselves and creating their checkboxes and judging other people based on their checkboxes. And of course, they had on their list their favorite things and they did not put on there their, the things that they didn't appreciate as much. So they had this law. They had a law that said that if a tax collector walks into your house, your whole house is unclean. I haven't found that in the Pentateuch. I don't think it's in there. But they lived by that law, and they felt themselves to be more righteous before God because they lived by such a law, and they judged other people by that. And so Jesus violating their law here is a very serious issue to them because they are determining righteousness based upon this law. But what they are not seeing, what they're not grasping, what they're not understanding here. is that their standard of righteousness is so far below that which is required by God. It does nothing to add to their righteousness. It does nothing to add to their standing before the Lord. So when I'm talking to someone who is a legalist, and this happens quite often because all of man's religion falls into these two categories, legalism and antinomianism, all of it, all of man's religion. You step away from the grace that you have in Christ Jesus. You step away from true Christianity. You fall into legalism and antinomianism. You dismiss the moral law of God. You don't recognize the law as it is, as it is prescribed. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You diminish that. And you make it into a set of rules. And so you dismiss, you become antinomian because you dismiss God's law. And you make up a standard of law for yourself. This is no small thing for a legalist to be told that he is antinomian. This is a very difficult pill for him to swallow. It is shocking. Like, and you all will have such a person tell you, wait a second. Wait a second, I am trying to help people be more holy. I'm trying to encourage people in, in righteousness. But the standard that you are encouraging them is lower than the standard required by God. And you're deeming yourself and others righteous or unrighteous based upon their keeping of this standard. 
I spoke to someone recently that had such a standard, and he was putting forward the idea of, of perfectionism. And he was arguing that men can be perfect, that you can be perfect in this life. It's a bit of a shocking statement. Most Reformed people that I say that to begin to chuckle a little bit. They're a little bit shocked. Like, perfect? I struggle with my sin every day. There's sins that I was committing I didn't even realize I was committing until they were brought to my attention. And as we begin to walk through what he meant by perfect, he put forward a standard of the law of God that was below what the law of God was. He said that, well, by perfect, I don't mean that you would never sin. Well, that's an interesting definition of perfection, I would say. You can be perfect. You're perfect, but, but it doesn't mean that you won't sin. Okay. No, it's at those times I, I, I can't help but think of Princess Bride, right? You're using those words. I don't think they mean what you think they do. His standard for perfectionism here was that you can get to a point in your life when you no longer intentionally commit a sin. I said, okay, that's really hypothetical. He wasn't claiming that he did that. He wasn't claiming he had the ability to do that, and he didn't bring someone in the room with him claiming. So that part wasn't able to be cross-examined. It was just this theoretical possibility of what could happen. This can be difficult conversations to have when you're not dealing with an actual person. It's just this theoretical idea. But here was my big problem with what he said, that the words that he's using don't mean what he thinks they mean. And it's not consistent with the Christian's life or sanctification. The standard of perfectionism that was put forward at that time is one that doesn't even begin to raise a candle to perfectionism. The requirement, dear friends, is that you are obedient in word and thought and deed in every respect and that you do not fail in any way. That is perfection. All of us are born spiritually dead. All of us are born unable to do that. And that standard that is being put forward is not perfection in any way. In any way, and it is not beneficial to Christians to even put this idea up or to say, and I think at one point the, a statement was even made to the effect of, or at some point it was made, it's, well, if this isn't possible, if perfection isn't possible in this life, well, what is the point? Well, what is the point of it all? Why are we even trying Let's consider that in light of the passage we have before us. Let's consider that in light of the two miracles that we've just witnessed just previous to this. To make that question, well, what is the point if perfection isn't possible? Dear friends, you were born a child of Satan. You were born in rebellion against God. You were born at enmity against God. You were born dead in your trespasses and sins. And 
And you've been made alive. You've been given life. You've been given the ability to walk in obedience. You are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You have for the first moment in your existence the ability to walk in obedience. Pray tell, how can we say, what's the point? See, the standard that we're looking at here in our gratefulness for the grace of God is not the comparison of where we would be if we never actually sinned in our lives. That's going to happen. That's in glory. Right? We, we, we've talked about that, the fourfold state of man. And one of the states that man will exist in is a glorified state, and you will not sin in that state. That's not our reality now. That's not our circumstances now. And God has so chosen that we would not be in that glorified state now, but that we would be dealing with what we talked about this weekend. We would still be dealing with the world and the flesh and the devil. And as Vody pointed out, the biggest things that we're dealing with on a regular basis is, is the flesh. We're dealing with our own sins and the consequences of our, our sins. See, but what we do have in Christ Jesus is a restoration with God. So it does us no good to merely look at, at this perfected state and say, well, we're not here, so what's the point? No, 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 that's not where you look. Yes, you desire to be there. You desire to walk in obedience. The Spirit works within you. You hear the Word of God. You repent and you turn and you're continually turning and you're hearing ways in which you sin you didn't even realize you were sinning in and then you're turning in those ways and you're walking and you're stumbling and that's the reality of this wilderness walk at this time as we are headed to glory. But we're not just looking at, well, this is where I'm not Oh, ho, hum, what's the point? No, we're looking back at what we were. We are remembering in gratefulness what has been restored. That we have been justified, that the Lord Jesus Christ has come forward. So there is a reason to feast. There is a reason to celebrate. There is a purpose and joy at this time we have not been called to an asceticism to set and deny ourselves of all joy to cause pain intentionally upon us or to intentionally make our lives difficult as though that makes you holier now there is a restoration that has been given there isaiah 53 beginning in verse 5 he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is, that is the basis, the foundation of our joy. Is what we are remembering. This is what Christ has done. There is a reason to celebrate here. There is a reason for Levi to call his friends. He is seeing where he has come from. He is seeing the joy in Christ. He is seeing the restoration with God that is being achieved through the life of Jesus Christ. He doesn't understand it all now, I'm sure. 
I'm sure he doesn't understand it all now, but he does know there's a promised one. He does know there is a Messiah, that there, there is one that is coming, and he is going to crush the head of the serpent, and this is him. And with what he has at this time, he is believing upon Christ, and he is turning. We see even repentance in Levi. He, he's just walking away from this. He's turning away from his old occupation. He is turning away from this. So there is good reason for joy here. And Jesus, and Jesus is here participating in this feast, celebrating with them. It is the scribes and Pharisees that are outside of this feast. See that picture. See that picture. In the last, in the last passage that we looked at, we had men that were striving and moving and going and seeking to bring their friend to Jesus because Jesus was the one that would save him. Jesus is the one that would restore him. Jesus is the one that would give him mobility, would give him life. And you had all of those sitting around Jesus, most closest to him in closest proximity physically that were furthest from him spiritually that gathered around just to judge Jesus by their own standard. Isn't that incredible? They thought their standard was so high that Jesus didn't even meet their tradition. Jesus didn't even meet their standards. Who are you to forgive sin? They didn't see him rightly. They didn't understand him as being the Messiah. They didn't understand him as being a son of God, as one who has come forward. It's that great Messiah that would make right all that is wrong, that would restore the relationship between man and God. It was mentioned this week in that, that, that temple that you see there in Eden. We've talked about that over time, but that temple that was there in Eden, this, this place where God and man were dwelling together, they were amongst one another, and that separation that happened afterward, Christ is restoring that. Christ is restoring that. John 1, 19, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word in the Old Testament, when you see the word tabernacle in Greek, it is that word that is dwelt there in Greek. Jesus is the tabernacle. It is in Christ that we dwell with God. We have a connection with God. So look forward to the conference in a couple years when we get to talk about Christ, our mediator. We, Aaron and I were even talking about that or who we might want to, to speak at that conference. I look forward to next year. We're going to talk about covenant theology. It's going to be fantastic. I really look forward to getting to that eighth chapter and talking about Christ, the mediator, Christ, the one that has restored this relationship in Christ. There's perfect fellowship now between man and God. So you, 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 don't, you don't see that in Christ if you are looking to your own tradition or your own standards as a means of gaining righteousness. That's why they didn't see it. They didn't see the depth of their own sin. They didn't see the seriousness of their own sin. And that is why they sat in judgment over Jesus, the Son of God, that came down and dwelt among them. They judged him. They didn't see God's law rightly. Friends, 
Don't, don't miss this. This is so necessary. You must see your sin. You must see the seriousness of your sin. You must see the depths to which you have violated the law of God, the ways in which you have not kept his law. And you must understand it is not okay. The Lord is not just smiling over you in your state in which you are not in Christ. He's not just smiling over you as though it's okay. Don't believe the false prophets that will tell you that. When the Bible says that you were at enmity with God, it means that you were at war with him. You had joined the alliance on the other side. You said, I didn't want to join that. As Vodi said, that's where you were born. You were born in Adam. You were born in opposition to God. You've got to see this. You must see the ways in which you violate the law of God, but you don't keep the standard. And that does away with the tradition. That does away with the rule keeping. That does away with the checking off of the boxes. And if you look at it through that lens, you see how a man like Levi can be saved. And even a man like Nicodemus can see that as well. Nicodemus had to see his own sin. Nicodemus comes forward to talk to Jesus, begins to give him some compliments. Jesus, you need to be born again. You need to get right with God. You give, give Jesus all these compliments. You don't understand your state, sir. You don't understand your circumstances. And when you see that, when you understand the depth from which you have been pulled out of, there's gratitude that is there. There's an absolute gratitude that will be manifested there if you will understand that, if you will see that, because you do not have to look at your sin and say, woe is me, I'm so terrible. You can look at your sin and say it has been it has been absorbed by Christ. Christ has taken this upon himself. It has fallen upon Christ. And when you hear even again of sin, you can think it has fallen upon Christ. Oh, the depth of the grace of God. And you hear of other sin that you have done. And you can look and you can say, the grace of God has fallen upon me even there. And I had not even realized it. And someone would say, but if you have this view, sir, Pastor, if you have this view, people will think it doesn't matter how they live. They will say, I can just live any way I want in this life and I'll go to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that one that sees the greatness from which they have been pulled from, one who has been forgiven much, is going to love much, and one who has been saved in Christ Jesus will desire to walk in obedience like the man that was healed and picked up his stretcher and walked out. Why? Because he can walk. Like Lazarus that was brought to life and walked out of the tomb. Why? Because he's alive. You as someone who has been saved, who has been given life, will walk in life out of gratefulness because you have been saved there is a, we talked about justification and seeing that with Christ taking upon himself the iniquity of us all. We see the sanctification immediately as it happens, we would say. Romans 6, 5 through 7, we'll be, by the way, we'll be talking about some of this. 
in this new Sunday school class that Pastor Fry is walking us through, this class on a newness of life. We'll talk about this immediate sanctification and progressive sanctification and how it works itself out in the life of the Christian. But Romans 6, beginning in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self is crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has, been, has died has been set free from sin. We see this idea of the freedom that is granted to the one who has been saved in Christ Jesus, this immediate sanctification that happens. You are no longer a slave to sin. And I know there's so many word of faith people that like to talk about you've just got to have the right mindset, you've just got to see the right things, you've got to see yourself as rich or see yourself as healthy. No, I wouldn't teach that, but you need to have the right mindset here in regard to your sin and your slavery to it. It is important that you see yourself as one who is not a slave to sin. You see yourself as one who has been freed from sin. That is so important to you, Christian. Though you may be struggling with a sin in a particular way, you may be fighting against that sin, you may be struggling with that sin, you need to see yourself as being free from sin. You need to understand that this freedom has been purchased for you. It has been purchased for you in Christ Jesus, and you are free. You are free indeed. You're free in Christ Jesus. He has purchased that for you through his death upon the cross, through the work of the Spirit within you, but you've been made alive you must see that. You may be struggling. You may be in Romans 7, as they spoke of during the conference, as those that are still struggling with sin, which we are. See yourself as one who is free. Romans 7 is coming after Romans 6. It's coming after Romans 5. There is a continual dealing with sin that we have in the flesh at this time. We're not perfect. We need, need not call it perfect. We need not go and make up some kind of Christian legalism and lower the law of God and call it some form of sanctification that it is not. No. There is a progressive work that the Lord is going to do in our lives. Even as those that are saved are free, have been granted life, there is this progressive work that the Lord is doing in our lives. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, it says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. We have a promise here and in many other places that the Lord is going to continue the work that he has begun in you. The Lord is going to work within you, dear Christian. Lord is going to affect you. The Spirit is going to work upon you. you. You were not saved from your sins so that you would just die and go to heaven. The Lord has work that he intends to do in your life now. As you struggle with sin, you may say, why? As tragedy happens, you may say, why? You could remember it's for your good and for the glory of God. We do have that promise in Romans 8. That which happens to you, dear Christian, is for your good, but I don't understand it. You may not. You may not. But we remember we're finite, and God is all knowing. God is all powerful. 
And God has spoken. He has said it's for your good. And that which he does in your life, dear Christian, is for your good. And even the struggle with sin that you have at this time, he's using even this for your good and for your glory, that he can display his grace in you. He can display his power in you. Because it was in the creation that he brought things into existence from absolutely nothing. You say ex nihilo, he, he spoke And there was light. Let there be light and there was light. I find that so incredible that the Lord is so sovereign. He's so omnipotent. He is so powerful that he commands that which exists not. And even that which exists not comes into existence. That which does not even exist responds in obedience to the command of the Lord. I find that to be so powerful in the early pages of the Bible, the Lord is commanding things into existence that exist not, and those things that exist not are obedient to him even at that time. And that is fantastic what he does in the creation, but what he does in the new creation is even more incredible because he has taken something that is dead, that is decrepit, that is unclean, that is worthless, that is vile, which is worthy to be thrown out, And he's made it to be that which is pure and clean and worthwhile and not merely, as though it's merely, but not merely legally that way as in justification, but begins to work in the person to actually be holy, working within them to immediately sanctify them and progressively sanctify them. That's how you have a story like you do here with Levi, this man who had spent his life, spent his career in a despised profession, in a, in, a, in, a, in a profession where he had sold out his own people, in a profession where most likely he was embezzling money from people, he was stealing money from people, he was using Roman soldiers to throw their weight around to put extra money out from them. He was taking advantage of people in difficult situations because of what he was even doing to them. He was putting these extra taxes on them. They couldn't pay it or they were being required to pay even an interest to him in that. This man is restored. This man has life. This man is living at this time, not just living but serving Christ, one who will write one of the Gospels in the Bible, is this man that was called out of this low state spiritually, this low state spirit socially, restored in Christ Jesus, made right in Christ Jesus. That's the freeness of the grace of Christ Jesus. And it but requires, oh dear friends, it, 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 it but requires that you will see your need of Christ, that you will see your need of him. You cannot go to Jesus and hold on to your own righteousness. You cannot cling to Christ and cling to your goodness. You cannot cling to Christ 
and cling to your actions of man's righteousness. To cling to Christ, you must let go of your own self-righteousness. To cling to Christ, you must see the depth of your sin and find no hope. Find no hope in yourself. Find your hope in Christ Jesus. Even the most defiled can be saved. Even the greatest of sinners can be saved. There will be gratefulness for those that are in Christ Jesus. The legalists may grumble, but there is grace and restoration in Christ Jesus. That's my prayer for you, dear friends, that you would see first and foremost the depth and the seriousness of your sin. She would not be sitting here at this time judging all of those around you, judging how much better you are than them, judging how they don't meet your standards, they don't meet some standard in this culture. That you would look to the law of God and see that you have violated it, that you have fallen short, that you have no hope through your standards of righteousness to have peace with God. that you would see there is but one that has been given, one that has been granted. There's but one name under heaven whereby man can be saved. It is Jesus Christ that is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. This is a narrow way. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Few find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. What path are you on, dear friends? Are you on that broad path of your legalism? Are you on that broad path of your self-justification? Are you on that broad path where you look down at others and despise them to justify yourself? Are you on that narrow path that sees your sin, sees the greatness of your sin, that sees no hope, no hope through your own actions, sees hope in in Christ alone. My prayer for you that you would be like those that are in this feast, those that are in this time of celebration, celebrating Christ and what he does, and not those on the outside at war with Christ and in judgment of him and his people. Where are you, dear friend? What road are you on? Judge it by the standard of the word of God and judge the object of your faith by the standard of the word of God. Come to Christ, dear friends. It is there that you find hope. It is there that you find rest. It is there that 